At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Have you ever sat down um, to have a meal with someone and somebody's offered to say grace? Say, hey, hold on real quick, can I say grace? Right? Usually it's like a phrase that we use sometimes to, uh, to say we're going to pray before we eat together. Right? It's kind of, kind of an interesting phrase, right? Why, why do we say we're going to say grace? It actually has an interesting origin. The, the word grace comes from the Latin uh, gratia, and gratia simply means favor or blessing, which is how we generally use grace in our world today, right? Grace is unmerited favor. That's a simple definition. So it's a blessing or grace that you, are, or that you don't deserve. But that original Latin term also not only carried the idea of favor or blessing, it also carried the meaning of thanks or gratefulness. It was the idea of both having gratitude for something that you did not receive. So to say grace, that phrase actually originated because it was the idea of both receiving something you didn't return and responding with gratitude for it. There's a connection between grace and gratitude. Obviously, the ideas were so intertwined that they were carried in the same word, but I would argue grace and gratitude even go together today. Gratitude is always an appropriate response to grace, to being shown favor or blessing. It's kind of our natural reaction, or at least it should be. When somebody shows us favor or blessing, we respond with thankfulness. We, we even do that in food. So uh, recently, I saw this connection in my house. So um, our nephew uh, just moved in with us a few months ago, and he's living with us. And um, in, in our house, my wife is a phenomenal cook, like next-level cook. Like, she does stuff I don't even understand. Like, this week, she literally went to the grocery store, and she told me, she was like, I saw these peppers, and I kind of wanted stuffed peppers, so I just, like, invented the recipe and made dinner. And I was like, what? Like, how do you, I don't even know how you do that, right? And it was delicious. It was phenomenal. So, um, so our nephew just moved in with us, and my wife cooks, and um, what I came to realize is um, he really saw my wife's cooking as, like, this significant blessing in his life, right? So he, like, every time when he moved in with us, and still does, he would be, like, super thankful for the food and express his gratitude, and his favorite phrase he always says is, that, this is immaculate. That's, like, his phrase, right? He, he, loves, he loves my wife's cooking, and he was, like, super thankful for it, and what I came to realize was, like, he really saw this cooking as a blessing. Now, what was interesting was I contrasted this, I observed this over time, that myself and my other sons didn't quite have the same reaction. That we had become so accustomed to my wife's cooking that I would say we didn't naturally always see it as a blessing like we should. And because of that, our thankfulness was not as exuberant. Grace and gratitude go together. And how we see grace informs our responses of gratitude. One of the most incredible things about the ministry of Jesus is that he comes to reveal God's grace to us. That through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is proclaiming that God is now showing unmerited favor and blessing to those that would trust and follow him. 
Last week, we saw that Jesus eats with everyone and invites them into his table to fellowship with him, no matter where we're from, no matter what we've done. And that as an act of grace, Jesus invites sinful people like you and me to his table to experience his salvation and grace. But the question that I want to wrestle with a little bit today is have you and I, have we truly recognized and received that grace? Or is it possible that we've taken it for granted? Or maybe even worse, refused it? Grace and gratitude are connected. And because of that, they give us the opportunity to evaluate how we have responded to the grace that is offered to us at the table of Jesus Christ. Because as we're going to see in our text today, our response to Jesus reveals the grasp, our grasp of his grace. Our response to Jesus reveals our grasp of his grace. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a series we're calling Soul Food, where we're looking through the gospel at Luke at some moments where meals played a significant role in Jesus's ministry and how they reveal to us more of who he is, what he's come to do, and how we respond to what Jesus offers to us. And today, at our passage, we're going to look at another meal. And in this meal, we're going to interact with two people who, who had dinner with Jesus, but they show us what it looks like to respond to the grace that Jesus offers to us. So with that said, let's jump into Luke 7. The first few verses kind of set the scene for us. So we'll pick, our, pick it up there and kind of work through this story together. So it says this in Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So let's set the scene. Jesus is invited to dinner with a Pharisee. What's a Pharisee? Right? Pharisees were a conservative sect of Judaism in the time of Jesus. They were, uh, what they marked, what marked Pharisees was they had a strict adherence to the Old Testament law, specifically in regards to their oral tradition of how it should be practiced. And because they, they had such a strict interpretation and practice, because they believed that God ultimately would liberate Israel from their oppressors and bring his Messiah in response to their moral purity. So they, they were a movement of Judaism that believed the more morally pure they were, God would respond ultimately by bringing his new kingdom and salvation. Pharisees had a, a kind of high status among the people, and, and a lot of influential leaders were Pharisees. They were part of this sect, which is the case here in our story. One of these Pharisees, who was influential, invites Jesus over to his house for dinner, and it notes that Jesus reclined at his table. In Jesus' day, they didn't eat dinner quite like us. Oftentimes in a house, they would have um, a lower U-shaped table with some pillows or different things around it, and when people would come to eat, they would actually sit on the, on the floor pillows, and they would lean on their left side and on their left elbow on the table, and then they would eat with their right hand with their feet away from the table, right? That was how they eat. So when it talks about reclining at the table, that is the image. So what we really see from the beginning of the story is Jesus is invited to a pretty typical Jewish meal with an influential leader, and that everything up to this point at the beginning is pretty normal. It's what we'd expect out of a meal. But what happens at that meal is anything but normal. 
Luke notes that while Jesus is eating there, a woman of the city who was a sinner comes up to Jesus. Now, this isn't totally out of the blue. Oftentimes, meals in Jesus' days, they weren't as private as we have them today. Sometimes they'd be in a courtyard, they'd be outside, or they'd be in an open area in the home where people could come and go as they please. We note that this woman was there from the beginning in verse 45. She knew Jesus was coming, and she was there ready to respond to him. The text makes two notes about this woman. One, she's a woman of the city meaning she's known in this town and area that Jesus is. And the second thing that she notes is that she is a sinner. Now, these were people who were viewed in the Jewish light as operating outside of the law, who were not in living in accordance with the way God had told people to live. Later traditions in Christianity, if you've heard the story somewhere else, come along and say that this woman was likely a prostitute, but that's actually unfounded. We don't, we don't see that in the text whatsoever right? We, we don't actually know why she's identified as a sinner. The only thing the text wants to draw our attention to is that her sin was prominent enough to have a reputation in the town. She was known in the town, and she had a reputation. And she's there when Jesus arrives. And when Jesus sits down to in, dinner, she engages Jesus in an unexpected way. And it leaves many shocked at her actions. But in doing so, she shows us an essential reality of our response to grace and how it reveals what we see in the reality of Jesus. And it's namely this, that grace received from Jesus results in great love for Jesus. As soon as Jesus shows up on the scene, this woman begins to shower him with affection and love. She begins to go above and beyond to show her love and devotion to Jesus. Now, the first question we should ask ourselves is, why? Why would this woman do this? Well, I think the simple answer, and what we see really as we follow through the Gospel of Luke, is that she had heard and come to trust in the good news that Jesus was proclaiming in his ministry. What was that good news? Well, Luke wants to show us that one of the things of the good news Jesus came to proclaim was that God was showing grace to sinners and sufferers, to those that were marked by sin, which is all of us. You see this throughout Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 1, the songs of Mary and Zechariah sung over the birth of Jesus remind us that God lifts up the lowly, that he's come down to bring liberty to those that suffer under oppression. In Luke chapter 2, God shows up to a group of angels the low-class, despised, blue-collar workers to proclaim that his glory and favor is now upon human beings. John the baptizer in Luke chapter 3 announces that he's preparing the way for the Messiah that's going to come and bring God's new kingdom to bear. And this is how Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 4. He says this at the synagogue on that day, quoting from Isaiah 51, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what we see throughout his ministry is that Jesus heals and ministers to the least of these, to the down and out, the outcast, the ones that society forgets. Last week we saw this. Jesus was willing to have table fellowship, engage in relationship with the ones that society often overlooked. If there's anything that we can observe from the ministry of Jesus up to this point is that he comes to bring grace to those suffering from the sickness of sin. And we can presume that at some point this woman heard Jesus' message and trusted in what he was proclaiming, that he was the Messiah, that he was bringing this. In fact, it's the only way we can really understand the story. 
New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey says this. He says, the story assumes that before the drama opens, the woman had heard Jesus proclaiming his message of grace for sinners. The entire account makes no sense without this assumption. So the bottom line is, this woman had received the grace that Jesus offered. That's why her response is what it is. And her response out of the grace she has received is not ordinary. In fact, it's extremely extravagant and deeply intimate. Luke is very careful in the text in the way that he describes her actions. He uses four key verbs, and each of those verbs highlight the extravagance and intimacy of the way she responds to the grace of Jesus. You see them in order in verse 38, right? It says, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. So the first thing we note is that she wets Jesus' feet with her tears, Note the deep intensity of emotion that this woman has as she comes into the presence of Jesus. It was common in Jesus' day when people sat down at meals to have their feet washed, right? They lived in a desert area. They were dirty. They wore sandals. And so it was natural when you went in someone's house to have your feet washed. That hasn't happened at this point. But this woman doesn't just use water to wet Jesus' feet. She actually uses the tears from her eyes in order to cleanse his feet. The next thing that she does is she wipes them or his feet with the hair of her head. Now, this is a pretty intimate act. In Jesus' day, in a Middle Eastern cultures, women did not let their hair down when they were outside of the home. Women, if they were outside of the home, would have bound their hair up, and most of them would have worn a scarf or a head covering over it. The only person that you would have let your hair down for in Jesus' day, if you were a woman, was your husband. If you, anything outside of that was considered scandalous in her culture. But she notes Jesus' need to have his feet cleansed, and so she unbinds her hair. She's willing to risk the scorn of those around her in order to begin cleaning and wiping her feet. This is an intimate act of love that she has for her Messiah. The intimacy only continues. Not only does she wipe his feet, she kisses his feet. Now, even I'm repulsed by that. Like, geez, Right? But again, there's an extravagance, a willingness to show her love for Christ. And then finally, she anoints his feet with ointment. And it notes that the ointment comes in an alabaster flask. This was an expensive ointment that she brought. And there's a cost to pouring it out and anointing Jesus' feet. But what it reminds us of is that when you've received something as priceless as the grace of God, there is no cost too extravagant to bear, to show a response of love. Her actions in this scene would have been a shock and seen as completely over the top, even borderline inappropriate to show this sort of love for another person, specifically a man. But what we see in this woman is that great grace leads to those sorts of responses and that sort of devotion That when we're shown that incredibleness of grace, we cannot help but respond with a life of extravagant devotion. Dr. H.A. Ironside, who was the pastor at Moody Church in Chicago for many years, tells a great story kind of highlighting 
the nature of devotion that responds out of significant acts of grace. He tells the story in his book in the Heavenlies about a woman who attempted an assassination on Queen Elizabeth I. The story goes that the woman actually went and hid in her room expecting the queen to come and show up and then she was going to attack her, but she didn't realize that the guards would come and search her room prior to the queen actually going to bed at night. And when they came and searched the room, they found the woman there with her knife. They took her and they dragged her and brought her before the queen. What, we, he, what he goes on in the book is that he says that the woman realized that her case, humanly speaking, was hopeless. And so she threw herself down on her knees and pleaded and begged the queen to have compassion and to show her grace. Queen Elizabeth looked at her quietly and coolly said, if I show you grace, what promise will you make me for the future? The woman looked up and said to her, grace that has conditions, grace that is fettered with precautions, is no grace at all. Queen Elizabeth, it says, understood immediately and said, you're right, I pardon you of my grace. And then they led her away a a free woman. But what he goes on to note is that history tells us that from that moment, Queen Elizabeth had no more faithful, devoted servant in her whole life than the woman that had intended to take her life to begin with. You see, when you're shown extravagant grace that you don't deserve, it's natural to then respond in devotion. And that's what we see even in this woman. The reality for you and me is that the grace that's offered to her in the ministry of Jesus is the same grace that's offered to each one of us today. The grace that Jesus offers is not earned. It doesn't come with conditions or prerequisites. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to do a bit more, work a little bit harder, get to the right spot in life, finally figure this thing out to receive his grace. No, the only thing you need to experience the grace of God is simply to just recognize that you need it. Like the woman before the queen who realized she had no hope of pardon apart from the act of the queen. Those of us that see in Jesus the grace of God recognize we have no hope to solve the issue of our sin apart from an act of God on our behalf. But the good news of the gospel is that that's exactly what Jesus came to do. That Jesus came to die on our behalf and rise again so that we could experience that grace in our own lives. And when we receive that grace... Man, it results in radical acts of love. It completely changes who we are from the inside out. It results in the sort of love that might seem odd to others, that might from the outside look like that's a little bit too much. Like, why on earth would you do that? But when you recognize the grace that Jesus offers you, it will always result in a great and incredible love for him. But what we see in this text is this woman's act of incredible love for Jesus actually stands in contrast to another person's response at the meal. It's our host. And you see him enter the story again in verse 39. Look at it with me. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You see, Simon shows us in his response to Jesus that grace refused from Jesus results in little love for Jesus. Simon's response to the acts of this woman is not only to judge the woman, but in fact to judge Jesus as well. His conclusion is simple. Jesus can't actually be a prophet because if he was a prophet, first, he'd know who this woman is and what her reputation is. Two, there's no way on earth that he would let her touch him. Simon's worldview says, if you're a prophet, you don't let these people interact with who you are. In fact, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach captures well Simon's worldview in this picture. He says this, that pious figures like prophets have nothing to do with sinners. If spiritual people are to maintain purity and testimony, association with sinners is prohibited. That's how Simon saw the world. And so when this woman steps on the scene, his first reaction is to say, this woman is sinful. He puts her in a category, this category of sinner, and he judges the woman based on this category that he has concluded. He puts himself in a different category. I'm not like that. And then he looks at Jesus and essentially says, because of the way you've responded to this woman, you can't be in my category as well. You couldn't be as morally pure as I am and what we're supposed to be. You, in fact, aren't a true prophet, right? His response is to reject Jesus because he categorizes him and essentially says, no, if you were really prophet, if you were really from God, you wouldn't respond in this way. Jesus senses Simon's judgment, and so he responds in only the way Jesus can, right? By offering him a parable or a story, a story with a spiritual point. And so he invites Simon to give, to respond to a teaching that he gives. And Jesus gives this parable, and when you read the passage, this parable actually stands right at the middle of the way Luke outlines this story, because he wants to highlight that the whole key of the story is centered around this parable that Jesus gives, because this parable actually gives us insight into the nature of our experience of God's grace. So Jesus tells a simple parable. There's two people who owe a great debt to someone, and they cannot pay their debt. They have no ability to pay off what they owe to the person to whom they owe it. Both of these people are totally at the mercy of those to whom they owe their debt. Now, their debts are different. One is equivalent in our day to about $11,000. The other person's debt is equivalent to about $100,000. That's a pretty significant difference in terms of what they owe. But the reality is... Whether it's literal or a lot, neither can pay it. And yet, the creditor shows them both mercy, and he cancels their debt. And Jesus invites Simon to understand the story by saying, who do you think will love the creditor more? The one who owes a lot or the one who owes a little? And Simon answers rightly. And Jesus' point is unveiled. That grace received results in responses of love, but the greater the awareness of the grace received, the greater the response of love. What your perception is about the debt that you owe and what is being canceled dictates the way in which you ultimately respond to that act of grace. 
And Jesus, out of this parable now, goes right for Simon and begins to challenge him in regards to his response to the grace that Jesus is offering. He draws a contrast between the actions of Simon and the actions of the woman. Because what he wants to highlight is that Simon, unlike the woman, has not trusted in Jesus and received the grace that God has offered. In fact, he's refused it. How do we know this? Because of the way he treats Jesus. Now, in Jesus' day, if you showed up for dinner as a guest at someone's house, you could expect a few certain actions to be taken. One of the first things you could expect is that you would be greeted with a kiss. Even if you go to Middle Eastern cultures today, right? There's the famous mwah, mwah, right? It's a sign of connection and relationship. This is how you're welcomed in. You could have then expected that someone would come and wash your feet before you entered into the home or went to the table because it would have been dusty and dirty and you wouldn't have entered into the home that way. And then the third thing you could have expected is that somebody would give you a little bit of olive oil on your hands in order to kind of clean and soften your hands as you prepared for dinner. What we see is that when Jesus shows up at Simon's house, Simon does not do any of these things for Jesus. Simon, and listen, this is not an accidental oversight by Simon. This isn't like, oops, sorry, I forgot. You would never forget in that culture, right? Like that, that would never happen, especially to an honored guest. It's safe to assume from the way Simon responds to Jesus that his whole purpose in inviting Jesus wasn't to honor him, but was actually to humiliate him. He shows no welcome, no fellowship, no honor towards Jesus. Why? Because he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees had rejected the message of John the Baptist that he was preparing the way for Messiah and it was time for God's people to repent because God was sending his saving king into the world. They had rejected the message of Jesus and ultimately the grace that God offered to all people. Simon simply refuses the grace of, that Jesus comes to offer because he thought that he was morally superior to Jesus and that would actually be the thing that would save him. His whole actions show he thinks he's better than Jesus. Right? Like, have you ever been to a restaurant where somebody's like completely rude to the wait staff? Like they're just like... like the way they talk to them, they never say thank you, they leave a bad tip. Like their whole interaction, you like sit there and you're like, who do you think you are, right? Have you ever had that experience? Maybe some of you worked in restaurants and you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I'll tell you exactly who they think they are. They think they're better than the wait staff. Their actions show it. And Simon's actions in this scene show he thinks he's better than Jesus. This guy couldn't be a true prophet because he doesn't act the way I think he should act. And in fact, I know better than him. I don't need the grace that he offers. The reality is Simon doesn't love Jesus because he doesn't think he needs him or the grace that he offers. And when you refuse grace, it results in little love for him. Simon's response forces us to wrestle with the question of how do we view ourselves in response to Jesus? And how do we view ourselves in response to others? You see, the reality is most people refuse the grace that is offered in Jesus and fail to trust in him because they don't think they need what Jesus has to offer. Most people don't think they actually need grace. 
because we convince ourselves, like Simon, that we're better than others. And that means we're good enough. Everyone, everyone, myself included, every single one of us in this room has someone that we think we're better than. And here's the easiest story, right? Well, I'm not Hitler. We all have someone that we think we're morally superior to. And oftentimes, we use those people to say, well, I'm okay. I'm good enough. So God should show his favor on me. And that's Simon, right? Simon lives out of his piety, out of his good enoughness. And because of that, when Jesus shows up on the scene and says, God's showing unmerited favor to those who recognize their sin and need for a savior and trust in me, Simon has no need for Jesus. He refuses him because he thinks he's okay. Actually, worse, he thinks he's better than Jesus. You see, Simon is prone to the, one of the deepest sins of the human heart, which is our own self-righteousness. It's trusting in our own righteousness over trusting in the righteousness provided with, from God. It's telling ourselves, we're good enough, we're okay, God should love me because I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or I've done enough of this that he should show me favor. Simon is prone towards that sin. And we all are. I mean, even some of you that are here this morning, and myself included. Oftentimes, when it comes to our own relationship with God, even followers of Jesus, our love can often grow cold because at some point we lose sight of the fact that we are only welcomed in because of what Jesus has done, not anything that we have done. What I oftentimes see and happen is people will come to Christ, trust in Christ, they begin to see their lives change, but then they start to turn around and judge others because they start to foster a, a, a feeling of self-righteousness. I'm okay. I'm better than I was. Therefore, God should love me. No, friends, if you're in Jesus, you are only welcome in because God is gracious to you, because he loves you, not because of you, but because he just loves you, period. That's the nature of grace. It is unmerited. You cannot earn it. So we have to be careful of our own self-righteousness. You want to know how you can know if you're self-righteous or not? You want to know how you can know what areas of your life you might struggle with self-righteousness? Well, Simon gives it to us very clearly, and I'll give you two simple ways. One, you're untransparent with your own sin. If you have an area of unrepentant self-righteousness, you will not want to bring that to the surface. Those are the areas of our life we keep swept under the rug in the back corner, away from conversation. We're untransparent, right? Because if I bring that out, if Simon brings out his sin, then at some point he's got to acknowledge, I'm not that different from this woman. I've got the same issues in my heart and the same sin, and I'm in need of grace just as much as she is. And that's going to break his whole worldview that he has built up that tells him he's more superior than she is. So we're untransparent with our own sin. And the second thing is, if you're self-righteous, you can't handle anyone else's mess. Where we have areas of self-righteous, we will always look on those worse than us in judgment instead of having compassion because we don't identify with where they're at. We've convinced ourselves, that's not me. I'm better than that. That's why God should love me. And that's what Simon does. 
He's untransparent with his sin, and he looks at the woman and says, no way Jesus could be a prophet if he's with her, because she's not on God's team. And what happens is, when we live from that place, we don't welcome Jesus, we don't fellowship with Jesus, and we definitely don't worship Jesus. Because where grace is refused, we will have little love for what Jesus has come to offer. This connection between grace received and ultimately our response of love is seen throughout the story. But the final closing scene really highlights it. Look at it in verse 47. Jesus continues, Therefore, so here he's now drawing this conclusion, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What we're reminded in this final scene of the story is that our actions of love ultimately reveal the faith that saves. It would have been shocking enough to this point in the story that Jesus would even draw a comparison between an influential Pharisee and this woman of the city. But here at the end, Jesus turns the volume up to 11 and takes it up a notch to make the point about the reality of our response to grace. When he does something that's unfathomable to those gathered, he looks at the woman and says, your sins have been forgiven. In just those simple words, Jesus brings two realities into view in the story. First, he acknowledges that the woman has been forgiven because of her faith in Jesus. In fact, the verb that Jesus uses here does not point back to her actions of love. It actually points back to a preceding idea of faith that only was demonstrated in her actions of love. She had trusted in Jesus, and that resulted in the extravagant display of love for him. But the way Jesus describes what she does shows that it is her faith ultimately that would save her. But the second thing is he's also revealing who he truly is. That he is not just a prophet, but he is in fact the Messiah. He is in fact God's own son sent to deal with the issue of sin once and for all to rescue God's people and all people from sin who would trust in him who could experience the salvation that God offers. The guests get Jesus' words and how incredible the claim is. Who can forgive sins? What human being can look at another human being and say, your sins are forgiven? It's all okay. No one, because none of us know the extent of our own depth of our hearts and sinfulness. And yet Jesus shows he's just not your average human being. He is fully human, but he is also fully God. The only one capable of declaring forgiveness of sin in response to faith. And what Luke will go on to show us throughout his gospel is that Jesus comes precisely for that purpose. To go to the cross and die on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sinfulness and to rise again so that we can be invited into God's new eternal kingdom, that we can be saved from our sin and have a relationship with God forever. The woman is simply saved because she has believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And to trust in Jesus is to receive the unmerited favor of God. It is to know grace And it is to know love. The woman's response is because she's 
realized the incredible reality of grace. Grace means that if you've put your trust in Jesus, you are loved, period. Period. That's the incredible nature of grace, that God loves you. And God loves you because of what he's done. It's to recognize that because of grace alone, you get to receive the most incredible reality of love that can completely transform your life and existence and heals you from the inside out. And the good news is you don't earn or achieve that and that you can't be discounted from it because of what you have done. When you receive the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ, you get the permanent, all-encompassing love of God forever. Forever. And that's an incredible thing. Who knows what this woman had done in her life to try to earn a sense of love, to try to earn a sense of identity, to try to earn a sense of purpose. And at some point it failed so spectacularly that she has a reputation around the town. And yet Jesus shows up and in some interaction, some proclamation of the truth of God's grace, her entire life is turned around in a moment and she experiences a love she never experienced before in her life. She experiences an acceptance she will never find anywhere else because Jesus comes to show us God's grace. And at the end of the day, Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in shalom, in harmony with God and with others. This woman's life is completely transformed because of her trust in Jesus. Her actions only reveal that reality. But the good news is Jesus is still transforming lives today. He's still in the business of taking people who sought their identity and purpose and love and all the other things and failed time and time again and redeeming them back and saying, you can have a relationship with the eternal God. You can know love. You can know identity. You can know purpose. You can know salvation if you only trust in me. One of my favorite sections to look at from time to time is the testimony sections at the end of the magazine Christianity Today. If, you, if you've ever read that, they've, for years, in the last few pages of their magazine, they come out every couple months, they share a testimony about someone who's had a radical experience with the grace of God, much like this woman. And they're super encouraging to read. I would encourage you, if you can, you can go on their website, you can find their archives. I mean, they're just like, oh, this is still what God's doing in the world. He's rescuing sinners. I mean, here's just some headlines. I have seven of them from the last couple years. These are testimonies that we hear about what God's doing. Things like, I was a new age healer. Then I realized I wasn't the one doing the healing. I entered a prison as a Protestant. I left as a Christian. I loved my girlfriend, but God loved me even more. God saved me from suicide. I went in search of my Jewish heritage. Along the way, I found the Messiah. I used to run with drug addicts and prostitutes. Now I share the gospel with them. And I grew up a fervent evangelist for Islam. Now I'm living out the book of Acts. And how many of us have seen that this is the grace that God shows? How many in this room can give testimony that you were once a sinner, that God, out of the kindness of his heart, rescued and brought you back into his family? Amen? Because here's the reality, friends. And I love this quote. There's more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Man, this woman had a reputation. But there was more grace that God had to redeem her from that. She was completely changed. 
This meal with Jesus is a triumph for this woman, not because of what she's done, but because of what Jesus did for her. But it's a tragedy for someone else. The saddest part for me of this story is Simon. You see, Simon's in need of salvation just as much as the woman. The parable makes it clear. He still owed a debt that he could not pay. Like every single one of us, he had fallen short of the glory of God. His sin had left him separated and cut off from the God who made him and his eternal purpose and kingdom. And yet, Simon sat at a meal with Jesus who offers unmerited eternal grace to those that would trust in him, who offers love without condition, and Simon refused it because of his pride and self-righteousness. At the end of the story, Simon doesn't hear your sins are forgiven. He doesn't hear your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The meal is a tragedy for Simon because he won't recognize who he truly is and therefore receive the grace that is eternally offered. Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus, says this. He says, the difference between Simon and the woman is not just how they view Jesus, it's also how they view themselves. Simon has no sense of forgiveness because he has no sense of need. But the woman has a strong sense of her brokenness. She knows her life is a mess, and she sees Jesus as someone who accepts her anyway, so she has an overwhelming love for him. And the question is, how do you view yourself today? Do you view yourself as someone who needs the grace of God? Who has no hope apart from God showing his grace and mercy upon you? Or is there some part of you down deep that says, no, I've earned this. God should show me favor. I deserve it. And if that's the case, we will not experience the incredible love for God. We won't have lives that show our trust in him. But the good news is Simon's story doesn't have to be your story. The story is written to implore you to let go of your pride and embrace humility, to let go of your self-righteousness, to stop thinking you're good enough and admit that you aren't so that you can receive what only Jesus can offer, the grace and love that your heart longs for. This week, I was driving in the car on Friday. It's my day off. I was headed to Target because I love to walk around Target with a cup of coffee and just look for deals. I know some of you, some of you women can say amen in this room, right? The rest of you can judge me for it. So I'm on my way to Target. I'm listening to music in the car. And in a moment, I was listening to this album. In a moment, I was just overwhelmed like with the grace and love of God. Like, I don't know if you've had this moment, but it was this moment where it was like, I was just so connected with the heart of God. I just, in this moment, realized, like, I, I, man, I don't deserve anything, but God loves me, period. Like, I, I know a mess, what a mess I am. I know what I've done, and yet God still loves me. And I just, like, was brought to tears. It was one of those moments where I just felt so connected to the Lord. I was like, I could sit in this moment forever. If this is what eternity is going to be like, sign me up, because I feel as full as you could feel in this moment. And then almost in the next breath, I just started to weep. Because I realized there are millions of people who don't know that sort of love. 
And there's some of you who are listening to the sound of my voice right now who have never experienced a moment like that where your heart is at such peace with God that you're so full of his love that you could sit in that moment forever. But the good news is God offers that to you. That today, if you're willing to let go of your self-righteousness and put your trust in Jesus alone, you can know an eternal love that will transform your life now and carry you on into eternity forever. That's the invitation at the table. And then if you do that, man, you'll be like the woman. It might look weird, but you're going to love Jesus. Because when you've received his grace, when you've recognized what he's done, when you realize you don't earn it, but he gives it anyway, man, you can't help but say, I'm with that guy. I'll follow him wherever he goes. I'll be with him until the end of my life and beyond because he's shown me grace where no one else has. That's what he invites you to today. And I pray, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, do it. It's the best thing you can ever do. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.